Good morning, everyone. Glad you're here. You can uh, find your seats. Um, we're going to be in the, again, the book of 1 Kings, 2 Kings, and 2 Chronicles. We're in the midst of our series, um, and the series is called In the Lord's Sight. Uh, the reason that's the title of our series is because you will see that all the way through 1 Kings, 2 Kings, and 2 Chronicles, you see the words, in the Lord's sight or in the Lord's eyes. Typically, when the Lord is talking about um, kings, when he's talking about their behavior, whether they're evil or they're good. And so that's kind of where the title comes from. We try to take our titles, not from culture, but from what the scriptures say. And then the question for us then is, you know, who are you looking to become or to be in the Lord's sight? Because there's a lot of our world that's trying to get us to become something in their sight, right? Buy this, buy that, you deserve it, you know, you'll look this way, you can change this, you can do that. It's all about like trying to put out an image, a brand, is what we try to do in our culture. And the Lord is also trying to put out an image. He's trying to put out the image of his son, Jesus. He's trying to put out the image of him as a savior... He's trying to put out the image of what it means to submit and surrender to him in this age and in the age to come. And so we've got to look at that. You know, and instead of celebrating who God is and celebrating becoming who he wants to be in our sight, so often we doubt. We, we decide we don't want to be what God wants us to be. Right? And what we do is then we create, as 1 Kings, 2 Kings, and 2 Chronicles says, high places in our life. Places that we're going to strive for. Places that we're going to build. Just like God's people did. They decided to create high places of worship that were not the places he told them to create. He told them it was evil to do that. There was a place of worship. It was Jerusalem. There was a place to go to worship him. They were to go there three times a year to do that and make pilgrimages to that place. And instead they said, ah, we'll make it easier for ourselves. We'll make some high places so we don't have to do all that work. So that we can get it right for God. Because, you know, he's made it pretty hard for us. So let's simplify this for ourselves. And we're just as guilty, if we're honest. And we're just as bad as the people of God's day. Because instead of knowing and celebrating God on the high place and the Mount of Jerusalem. And realizing that that's where he's called his people to. And someday that's where he's going to call us to. There's going to be a new Jerusalem, a new heaven that's going to come down. And we wait for that day. Instead of that, we create high places of our own. You see, everyone wants to claim to have a word or a vision or a special sight, a special insight from God so that we can claim some special high place of revelation that we have and call people to that high vision and place of revelation that we have. Matter of fact, even in church planting today, they will even train you to do that so often. You need to tell people how great your church is and your specific vision and what you're trying to do and Instead of calling people just to the simple sight of who God is. As Father, Son, Holy Spirit that we just sang about. You know, and so what happens is we claim a special high revelation instead of, you ready for this? A simple revelation, a simple insight, which is the person of Jesus Christ. And that there is no home for me here, there is no church for me here permanently because it's all being sent on to heaven so that he can bring all that permanently. And that's hard to embrace. It's hard to wrestle with that reality in life. We're going through some hard things in my family right now where 
We're dealing with some health care issues with my, with my dad, and it's very difficult, and he's coming to the end of his life. There's nothing we can do. But thankfully, he has a special, simple insight from God, and that's the person of Jesus. And so he's ready, whatever happens. And he'll fight in this life, and he'll honor the Lord in this life, but he knows that his time is close. And he's ready to see Jesus, to have the sight to see his Savior. And including that, he wants to see some people that he's lost. You know, this is Memorial Day. And the Lord gives us insight and sight into the fact that those who die in him, those who die believing in him and believing that he can bring life again, you will see them again one day. That they have a home with him. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And where I am, Jesus says, I'm going to call you to me. I'm going to bring you home to be with me. And then someday I'm going to create a new heaven and a new earth where we'll all be together. And my dad is longing for the day, the memorial day, when he gets to go to heaven and he will see his sister, or his daughter and his family and the people that he's lost in his life. And that's what we remember today. We remember the fact that there were those that have gone on before us. They're not here. But unfortunately in our culture, one of the things that we do, just like the Old Testament and the people of God did, just like we looked at Jeroboam taking to the northern kingdom and Rehoboam going to the southern kingdom, we forget God's plan. We forget what God's written down, we forget the simple revelation he's given us in his word, and then we create other ways to remember God, ways that we think are better. And so it's interesting to me because for most of us, we know this is Memorial Day, we know the Indy 500's today because we live in Indiana, right? But most of us probably didn't know that it's Shabbat today. Today is Shabbat, it's Pentecost. You see, after Jesus died and he was resurrected, On Passover, it wasn't today, but Pentecost was this week. Shabbat was this week. But after Jesus was resurrected and after the Passover, the sacrifice of the lamb, Jesus was the lamb, the people of God for thousands of years were commanded in the Old Testament to count the Omar, which was to count the days. They were to count 49 days, and on the 50th day, God would bring his word, his revelation to them, and they would then be able to remember him through his word forever and ever and ever. That's why when Moses was on Mount Sinai, God delivered them from slavery. That's Passover. They wandered for 49 days. They find themselves at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses is on the mountain receiving God's word, the Torah, from the person who is the word. That's Jesus because he's called the word. He's on the mountain He comes down and the people have created a golden calf because they're like, well, we'd like to create some image, something that represents our God for us instead of just believing that God would reveal himself and they could trust him with their very lives. And Moses comes down off the mountain and there is a great slaughter of people for their rebellion. And remember where we find ourselves today. There's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, right? The northern kingdom has not created one golden calf, but Jeroboam has created two golden calves for the people to worship. He set up two new places of worship and said, everybody come to me. I've made it easier for you. I'm going to make this better than the southern kingdom because it's hard to worship God down there. It's hard to be obedient to his commands. It's hard to make that travel. So we're going to have an easier way to know God and simple and not all that stuff you have to do. And they make two golden calves 
instead of one, and the idolatry continues. And so this morning, what I want us to look at in light of the fact that it's Memorial Day, in light of the fact that it's funny to me that we keep making up holidays on top of God's holidays instead of recognizing that God made the holidays way back when. Why don't we know them? It's not wrong to remember what has happened in our country, but we should remember God's first. Remember what he's done for thousands of years, not what our country's done just for a couple of hundred. Because we're not going to be around any longer. God's country's going to be around forever when he brings it. And you're going to be shocked because probably when we get to heaven, we're going to be talking about all these celebrations and we're probably going to be doing them. (laughs) And you're going to be like, what's this? Never heard of this before. Where's Memorial Day? Um, Well, that's Shabbat. You stole it from me. Like, that's that's what you're going to have to do. So, and on Shabbat in the New Testament, that's when the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth that would convict God's people about the Word of God, the Word is Jesus, so that's the purpose of the Holy Spirit, came in and filled believers on the day of Pentecost so that they would know there's no longer a place we have to go to. There's no longer a temple we have to go to. God resides inside of every believer. And anytime we gather to worship him, we are crying out, you are with us, your word is with us, help us to live it, and we will hold one another accountable to it. It's a beautiful picture. But we've lost that just as much as we're going to see this morning that God's people had lost the image and beauty and insight of God. And they created their own high places that made it easy and comfortable instead of surrendering their lives. So this morning, what I want us to look at is ancestors and descendants. That's what you're going to see as we read through these passages. The ancestors and descendants that are mentioned and talked about. And we're going to read about a lot of kings All the kings we read about, except for one, were pretty much evil. God calls them evil. Think about that for a minute. God doesn't like to call things evil. He wants to call people his children. But he's not afraid to call what's true. And I don't know where you sat with your ancestors and descendants. I don't know what was passed down to you, what you've had to deal with the problems you've had, I I don't know, but I can tell you that in God, he says he wants to adopt us and give us a new family and start a new family line with different ancestors and different descendants, that it's a new bloodline, not of earthly DNA, but of spiritual DNA of the blood of Christ and the supernatural transformation that that makes in our lives. And so this Memorial Day, as we remember those who have gone on in the past, and we remember that we're going to be those that people show up at our grave because we're going there someday. How about we pause for a minute and look at what God tried to tell his people and warn his people and look at the mess that when you think we're in a huge mess, hopefully when you read this this morning and we read through this, you'll think to yourself, oh wow, this is pretty normal. We're kind of in normal right now. We had it really good, and now we're back to normal. So let's look at a few things. We're going to be in 1 Kings 15 through 16 and 2 Chronicles 13 through 16, kind of excerpts. Remember that we have a southern kingdom, which is the tribe of Judah and Benjamin. The place of worship is Jerusalem. There's a temple there and the ark, which represents God's presence. Those are all the things that were kind of laid out. Remember, God never wanted his people to have a king. God never wanted his people to build a temple. He went ahead and used the king and used the temple because that's what God does. Romans 8 says that God uses everything for his glory to those who love him and are called according to his purpose, right? Even the stuff we build that we shouldn't have, God's like, well, I'll use it. 
right? I mean, he, he has a way of doing that, of turning things around, even though he says, I'm warning you, you don't want a king. You don't want the consequences. I'm, don't have a temple because I'm going to hold you to that temple. In other words, take seriously these decisions you make. That's also the same for us in Christ. We should take seriously the decision when we decide to say, God, this is your new temple. Don't take that lightly. Because God says, good, I'm going to come in and I'm going to make it my temple. We're going to do some work. I'm going to send some people that are going to help you work on your temple. You're like, oh, well, I, didn't, I just thought I was like, we're, we're good, right? Like, I have you, everything's fine. Oh, no, no, you need some temple work. You're, you're a mess. And we all need it. It's why we need the church. It's why we need the body of Christ. It's why we need the word. We can't just accept Jesus and go on with our life. We genuinely need the insight that God has so that he can change us into the people he wants us to be so that we can create a memory and a glory for him that will last far beyond our years instead of a memory and a glory that brings it to ourselves and then there's not much for the next generation but more fighting, more war, more pain, more division. And so you have a northern and southern kingdom. In the northern kingdom, the other ten tribes, so they're the majority rule. Right? You think, well, they got more people. They're the majority, so they must be right. Wrong. God's like, they're wrong. He told Jeroboam, if you'll worship me and let the people still go to Jerusalem, if you'll just let the people still obey me, I will bless you, Jeroboam. I won't bring disaster on your household. Just, just let them. I know you have to separate from Rehoboam right now because Rehoboam's wicked and he's not doing the right thing. I get that. But can you just be patient for me to bring my restoration instead of you trying to create another way to save yourself? Can you please do that? And Jeroboam said, no, not going to do it. I'm going to create my own ways of worship. We're going to do our own thing. And I don't want those people traveling down there and getting right with God. And like, because then they might not come back and then I'll lose my taxes, my base, I'll lose all my influence. And so Jeroboam said, no. And the disaster that we see is awful. He created two temples in Bethel and Dan for the two golden calves. And you think, how, how do we get there? Like, how do you go? Like, do they not know the Torah? The five, there's only five books they had to know and read. They, all, they were all taught Hebrew. Like, did, they made a golden calf and a bunch of them got slaughtered and killed for it. I know. Let's make two and God, you know, and it'll be better. The problem wasn't that we made one. We should have made two. Like, this is us. We do the same thing. And God's like, I, I give you these stories. I give you these memorials so that you don't make the same dumb mistakes. And then we're like, well... I think I can do mistakes better than their mistakes. I'll make triple the mistakes they made. I'll show you. That's exactly where we find the story. And here's what we look at. God calls evil and good. In the southern kingdom, we're going to look at Abijam. He reigns for two years. The prophet that spoke to him is Shemaiah. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight. Then we have Asa, who reigns 41 years. One of the longest reigns of any of the kings that we read about in the 500 year period, and he's the only one God says is a good king of the, of the southern tribe, the only one. And then look at the northern kings. Nadab one year, Basham, Basha 23 years, Eliah one year, Zimri seven days, Omri nine years, and then Ahab right at the end, which we'll be looking at going forward 21 years. The northern kingdom is constantly changing leaders thinking what? They'll, we're going to fix this. That guy's not right. We'll fix it. We're fixed. I'm glad we don't do that in our culture. 
I'm glad we've learned our lesson, right? I'm glad we're, I'm glad we're putting out campaign signs for Jesus to save us, right? <laughs> so here we go. 1 Kings 15.1, it says, In the 18th year of Israel's king Jeroboam, son of Nebat, Abijam became king over Judah and reigned three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Makkah, daughter of Absalom. Abijah walked in all the sins of his father before him had committed, and he was not completely devoted to the Lord God as his ancestor David had been. There's the ancestor thing. God calls him back and says, look, I gave you an example. I gave you a man who longed for my spirit. He wrote a psalm that said, please, Lord, don't take your spirit from me. I know I've sinned. I know I'm broken. And I know if you leave me, I'm in trouble. And so I desperately want to stay close to you and I repent of my sin, David says. And then it goes on to say, but because David... But because of David, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem to raise up his son after him and establish Jerusalem. God's like, you think that you became king and you got this because you're something? I'm doing this because someone way before you did something right and said a prayer. That's the only reason you're here, buddy. It ain't you. That's what God says right here. So don't get all prideful and think, oh, I've got the answers. I've got to write books and let people know how smart I am. You're nothing. People prayed for you for generations. That's why you're where you're at. Don't think you're too, much, too smart because you'll just mess it up like everybody else. And he goes on and he says, For David did what was right in the Lord's eyes, and he did not turn aside from anything God had commanded him in all the days of his life except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. I love that God doesn't hide sin. He lays it out. He says, yeah, David did what was right. I loved him. He's, he was right before me. He's with me. Like, this is great. Except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Like, like he just admits. Like, and isn't that beautiful when you can do that in relationships? Man, I love you. You're a moron. I mean, it's beautiful when you can have that kind of a relationship when it's just like, yeah, that's, and I don't know if God's going to change you or not, but I'm patiently going to wait for him to do it. And I hope you patiently wait for, you know, him to change me too. But we're going to focus on him. We're going to dig into him. And we're going to walk through this process and we're not going to try to create new high places and do things to try to fix this. We're going to really dig in. And that's what David did and that's what Abijam refused to do. It goes on and says in 2 Chronicles 13, remember 1 and 2 Kings mirror 2 Chronicles. They're stories that go back and forth, okay? Different historical writers that match and give some different details, a lot of the same details. It says, but as for you... Um, he goes on and he says, but as for you, Yahweh is our God. We have not abandoned him. The priest ministering to Lord's descendants of Aaron, he goes on, and he says, and the Levites serve at their tasks, and the descendants of Aaron and the Levites, and make your own priests like the peoples of other lands do. Look, God and his priests are with us at our head. The trumpets are ready to sound the ch charge against you. Israelites, don't fight against the Lord your God, your ancestors, for you will not succeed. Where's this coming from? This is coming from Abijam, the evil guy, the one that didn't do what was right, but he has a moment of clarity. This can happen. Evil people, people who don't follow God, God can actually give them moments of clarity. He did it with Nebuchadnezzar. He did it with Pharaoh. He does it all the way through the Bible. And Jeroboam is getting ready to attack Abijam. He said, you know, enough is enough. God's blessed me. I'm going to now bring my armies down and I am going to attack the southern kingdom. I'm going to kill my own people and my own nation. I'm glad we've never made that mistake before. 
north and south. And, and Abijam, in a moment of clarity, says, hold on. Like, as for us, Yahweh is our God. I know we've got all the other idols too, but we think he's the best one, at least. I mean, that's literally what Abijam is saying, because he hadn't taken down the high places and there were idols everywhere. He's like, but at least we still acknowledge him. You've like just abandoned it. And then he says, we've not abandoned him, not completely. We have the right priest, as the Bible says, the Levites. You've just created priests of your own choosing, he goes on to say. It says that there had been war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Back to Kings 5.6, it says in the days of Rehoboam's life, there was also a war between Abijam and Jeroboam. Second Chronicles goes on to say, Abijah, the H and the M can be switched out, just so you know. So Abijah and Abijam are the same person. Okay, in the language. So don't think, wait, are we two different people? Same person. So I have a little M out there to decide. He set his army of warriors in order with 4,000 choice men. Jeroboam arranged his mighty army of 80,000 choice men in battle formation against him. They're outnumbered two to one. Why? Because there's two tribes, Judah and Benjamin in the south. Benjamin's been decimated because of the book of Judges talks about how Benjamin was almost wiped out. And there's 10 tribes coming against them. It's two to one odds. And Abijam is not a good guy. Like he's going to go into battle and he's got to struggle with the fact that like I've been really evil. I don't know if God's good. So it goes on. It says, Then Abijah stood on Mount Zerim, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, and said, Jeroboam and all Israel hear me. And now you are saying you cannot assert yourselves against the Lord's kingdom. Don't you, uh, didn't you banish the priests, the descendants of Aaron and the Levites, and make your own priests like the prophets of other lands do in Second Chronicles? And then he says, again, what we just read a minute ago, he repeats, he goes, or not repeats, but he says it, but as for us, Yahweh is our God. We've not abandoned him. The priests ministering to the Lord are descendants of Aaron. That's what the Bible said they needed to do at that time period. There's a new priesthood now, and the reason is because we have a new high priest. Jesus fulfilled the old marriage to Israel. He died for the, that marriage. He died, and so he made a new family and created a new marriage, and that's the church. And he goes on and he says, and the Levites, and you make your own priests like the people of other lands do. Look, God and his priests are with us at our head. The trumpets are ready to sound the charge against you. Israelites, don't fight against the Lord God of your ancestors, for you will not succeed. Look at what he has. He has a moment of clarity and he says, don't fight against, he doesn't say, don't fight against me, Abijam, because I'm going to kick your rear end. That's not what he says. He says, don't do this against the Lord. We're brothers. We're all a mess. We got idols everywhere. You got like, like, let's not, this is not going to end well. God is not pleased with this. Goes on, he says, Jesus, uh, or I'm sorry, John the Baptist had a conversation like this with some of the people in his day. See, John the Baptist was called by God to go out and preach and baptize for repentance. He was supposed to get ready for Christ coming, the Messiah to come. And if you remember, the Pharisees and Sadducees and religious leaders of his day thought the Messiah was going to come as a political military leader, wipe out the Romans and give them their lands back. And, get, and they were going to win the battle that now Jeroboam and Abijam are getting ready to fight. Like our Messiah is going to be the, like the north. Jeroboam's our Messiah. He's going to come in. He's going to kick their can and we're going to get it. And the south is saying, no, don't do that. God's not going to allow that. And so they're at a war. 
John the Baptist is in a war with the religious leaders of his day because they believed that they could just, we're waiting on God to come and get everybody instead of, no, God is trying to raise up a people that will show his glory, call the world to repentance. They will be a repentant people so that when he comes with his Messiah in war, people have heard and are ready. And instead, they're like, yeah, we don't care about all those Gentiles. We don't care about all those people. We don't care about, we just, we just want power. Same as Jeroboam. See, this hasn't changed. Thousands of years later, it's the same battle. And it's the same decision we have to choose to make. Who do we believe? Whose side are we on? Which ancestor, descendant, what kind of life do I want people to look back and see about me? Right? Look at what John the Baptist says. He says, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to the place of his baptism, that's the Jordan River, John the Baptist said to them, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore produce fruit consistent with repentance. And don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children from Abraham from these stones that are around this river. That would have been highly offensive, by the way. All of these Pharisees and Sadducees, to be a Pharisee or a Sadducee, you had to be able to trace back all of your family line all the way back to Abraham. Or you could not be a religious leader. You had to show it was unbroken and that you had the right to be a religious leader in that culture, to be a scribe, a Pharisee, or a Sadducee. For, the, for, for John the Baptist, this guy dressed in goat hair, eating locusts and honey, which I always laugh about because everybody wants to come up with like the Daniel diet in the Bible and we're supposed to eat, you know, the carnivore diet or this diet and they try to use the Bible to prove it. And I'm like, why does no one want to do John the Baptist diet? Like there's plenty of locusts to eat. They kill everything. Let's do the locust and honey diet. That'll be a blast. No one wants to try it, right? Like, no, no that's okay. Well, and so here's John the Baptist, and he looks at them, and he says, look, you guys are a bunch of snakes. You think that God is on your side like Jeroboam, and he's not. You're snakes. Even though God has given you a position of leadership, which he gave to Jeroboam, it was given to him, you guys are snakes. Don't do this. You're coming out here, he says to them, to check on me and see the show. You're not coming out here to actually repent and see if the words I'm giving are true according to the word of God. You're just mad that people are leaving your worship and coming to mine. That I'm calling people back to true worship because then they go back to the temple and you can't manipulate them anymore. And they start questioning you. And they go, why isn't my lamb good enough? And they're like, oh, there's a spot right here, but we'll sell you this one. And then they sell me this one. I'm like, well, this one's got a spot too. Yes, but we've approved that one. Yeah, I don't think that's righteous. Oh, who are you, Mr. Nobody, to question us, the Pharisees and the Sadducees? See, that's what was going on at this time. And John the Baptist is simply going out with a simple message saying, look, you should go to the temple. Jesus told people to go present themselves at the temple. Jesus went for every festival. He obeyed every Old Testament law perfectly. But he recognized that it wasn't about the temple because he said, I'm here. I'm the temple. <laughs> so John the Baptist says, you know, you're thinking that your ancestors are going to save you. You're thinking that some religious pattern you have is the Pharisees and Sadducees, that, that makes you better. That's going to get you further into heaven. You're going to get at a level of heaven that other people don't. John the Baptist is like, that's ridiculous. It's not about that at all. And then he goes on and he says, 
Look at this. Even the axe is ready to strike the root of the trees. Wait, you're going to uproot Abraham? Excuse me? Who do you think you are, John the Baptist, locust, honey eater? Right? And again, John the Baptist is proving his message. He is not calling people to follow him. He is calling people to follow Yahweh, and he's saying to them, someone's coming after me, you're going to need to follow. There's a Messiah coming, I ain't him. So don't come to me and think I'm creating some new church, some new religion, some new thing. I'm calling you back to the old things, the things we should have been doing all along that we've forgotten, which is what Abijam is telling Jeroboam. And he goes on, and he says, therefore every tree that doesn't produce fruit good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. That's exactly what God told Jeroboam. He said, look, I'm offering you a kingdom. I need you to produce the fruit of the Old Testament. Obey me and, do, and I will give you fruit. I will bless you. I'll preserve your line and your people. I will do that. But if you don't, I'm cutting you down, which we'll see in a minute. God did. Then he goes on, verse 11, and it says, I baptize you with water for repentance. Like John's like, I just use water to like show people He's kind of clean right now. He says he wants to be clean, and he's clean right now. He hasn't sinned again, so he's clean until he goes up there, stubs his foot on a stone going out of the river, and he's like, and you're like, yep, not clean anymore. Sorry, I already baptized you. Have a nice day. Like, he goes on and he says, look, I baptized you with this water, but one who is coming after me, he's more powerful than I am. I'm nothing compared to him. He says, I'm not worthy to remove his sandals. That's a common thing a servant would do for a king. King comes in, puts his foot out, the sandals are removed, the servants are there, they wash his feet so that he can go into his room. John the Baptist is like, I'm not even worthy to be the person that removes the feet of this guy and washes his feet, much less baptizes him. And isn't it interesting that the picture that Jesus decided to give to his disciples was to wash their feet before he took communion with them. To say, I am your servant. This is different. This isn't like what you've seen. And John the Baptist, hey, you're going to actually have to wash me. I know you don't want to, but it's what God's asking you to do. So don't think you're so super humble you can't baptize the Son of God when he asks you to. And he says he will himself, he himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. This water gets you temporary clean. You need, to, you need to go through the fire to be ultimately clean before God. You need to be burned up. But if you know Jesus, he says he seals us with the power of the Holy Spirit. He gives us the Holy Spirit as a down payment and he says he will give us a new life, that after we go through the fire and there's nothing but ash left, isn't it great that God created man out of what? Ash, dust, so he can recreate you, and he's going to do it. Problem is, Jeroboam and Abijam had forgotten that. They're at war with each other. At least Abijam has a moment of clarity. Then it says, now Jeroboam had set an ambush around to advance them from behind. So while the sermon's going on, right, they're ambushing. Right? Abijam's like trying to plead, tell them don't do this. And Jeroboam's like, well, he's talking. I got stuff to do. And he goes around the back. He's, you know, getting ready, you know. And then it says, now they were in front of Judah and the ambush was behind them. This is bad. You're fighting on two fronts and you're outnumbered two to one. 
Judah turned and discovered that the battle was in front of them and behind them. So they cried out to the Lord. Under that in line, underline that in your Bible. They didn't go, we got this under control. Let's bring out some of our, uh, you know, big catapults. We'll, yeah, we'll take care. They're like, we're in trouble. Abijam's been preaching a sermon, and while he's preaching, we had no idea, but now we're done. And so what do they do? In a moment of clarity, they just cry out to God, and they say, God, we're nothing. We, we are outnumbered. These are our brethren. We've tried to plead with them, God, help. And then look what happens. Then the priest blew the trumpets. And you think, yeah, and then God sent angels. And they all just sat there and went, look, God took care of all of it. See, that's not how God works. See, God gives you the call. He gives you the power so you go. So that you actually go do works worthy of repentance. So yes, you can cry out and repent. But then he says, okay, now you go out and declare that you've been saved and that you have repented. That's your job. So then the trumpets blow. They're not like, well, we're just waiting for angels because that's what the Bible, the trumpets blow and the angels come. He's like, no, 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 no. The trumpets blow, look, and the men of Judah raised to the battle. When the men of Judah raised to the battle cry, God routed Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. So the Israelites fled before Judah and God handed them over to them. Then Abijah and his people struck them with a mighty blow and five hundred thousand choice men of Israel were killed. That's about the same amount we killed in the Civil War. It's real close. Five hundred thousand men had to lose their lives because of the pride of two men. And a nation that loved getting on the side of the pride of two men. I'm for Jeroboam. I'm for David and Solomon and his line. Pride. We got this. God's like, you're all losing. And it's going to be awful. You're going you're to end up killing thousands and hundreds of thousands. Just cry out to me and do what I ask you to do. Come to my battle that I've asked you to fight. Jesus says in the New Testament that our battle is not against flesh and blood anymore, but against the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms, that we have different weapons to fight with than back then. We have the weapons of prayer, the weapons of surrender. Does that mean we never fight? No. Can you imagine if the world decided we're just going to pray and we're not going to fight Hitler? So God calls people to fight. There's a moment when you have to say that's unrighteous and we can't stand for it. Because God asked you to. If you see a woman being raped, right, we've had to now tell people in our culture, if you see, see something, report it. Because we weren't doing that. People were walking by me, oh, I saw it, I'm praying for you. And then just keep walking. What be, I'm great you prayed for me. Could you get this guy off me? Could you step in? Well, it's really not my place. Well, then what are you still doing here? Why don't you just get called up to go to heaven and not do anything then? God just sucks you. If you okay, then Jesus has saved you. Just get sucked up into heaven because there's nothing left for you to do here. Because like, you can do everything better in heaven than you can do here. You can worship better. You can repent better. You do everything better except one thing, and that's evangelism. That's telling people and representing the God of the universe to people who don't know him. It's the only thing we get to do on this side of eternity. That's it. We'll never do that again in heaven. And on the new earth. Because everybody knows him. It's done. So we've got a job to do. And yes, it's grace. We are not saved through works. It's both though. There's the book of James. Like the, they didn't get rid of the book of James. They kept it in there. They wanted to get rid of it because they're like, James talks about works a lot. 
Because we're supposed to have fruit worthy of repentance. That's what John just said. Produce fruit worthy to show that, yeah, I have repented. Like God is working in my life. He's changing me. It's a slow process because, man, I am a hard-headed, hard-hearted, hard-stoned person. And God's crushing me a little bit at a time. I lose a finger, he crushes it, and then he puts on a new one. I'm like, oh, wow, that's interesting. And he crushes another one. I'm like, ah, and he puts it on. Like, there you go. He's changing us. And if we don't get that, this is what we keep having. Wars and wars and wars and wars until we finally say, you know what? I'm going to surrender. I'm not going to fight against God. I'm going to fight with him for what he calls me to. It says in verse 18, the Israelites were subdued at that time. The Judahites succeeded because they depended on the Lord, the God of their ancestors. Remember, they're wicked at this time. Abijam is called a wicked king. And yet God still did something. He's still working in the midst of the wickedness. If you think you're so wicked God can't use you, you're definitely not as wicked as Abijam. And God used him. God can use the small faith that we give him, he can say, you know what, I'll take the mess and make something good out of it and teach a lesson for all of us. 1 Kings 15, 8 says, Abijam rested with his fathers, was buried in the city of David, and his son Asa became king in his place. Now, Asa's really cool. Because in 1 Kings 15, it says, in the 12th year of King Israel, um, 12th year of Israel's King Jeroboam, Asa became king of Judah and reigned 41 years in Jerusalem. That's a long stinking time. That's longer than most people in this room have been alive. That means you got one king most of your life, 41 years. Then it goes on and it says, which is great if he's a righteous guy. If he's an idiot, then we want term limits. Like, I don't want that guy, okay? So then he says, his grandfather, or his grandmother's name was Maka, daughter of Abishalom. Asa did what was right in the Lord's eyes, as his ancestor David had done. He banished the male cult prostitutes from the land and removed all of the idols that his fathers had made. He did an honest assessment of his ancestors and his descendants. We don't know how to do that anymore. We have been so pitted on either side of the woke agenda, social gospel agenda, everything else that we have, that we don't know our Bibles so that we can actually sit with God and say, this was wrong, this was right. This was righteous, this was evil, and I am going to say it out loud to people. That doesn't mean we have to go back and undo it all. It happened. You can't undo it. He didn't go back and say, and I hated him, and him, and him, and Solomon was an idiot, and he, was, he just went, I'm not going to do what they did. We're going to do something different. And we're going to trust God, Asa says. Instead of trying to fix everything and make appeasements, we're just going to admit our sin, confess it, and move forward obeying God. That's what we need in our culture, and we need people calling one another to that. Not picking sides. And then it says, he banished all those, he got rid of it all, and then it says, look at this, he also removed his grandmother Maka from being queen mother because she had made an obscene image of Asherah. Asa chopped down her obscene image and burned it in the Kidron Valley. In front of Grandma? You took an axe to Grandma's Asherah and burned it in front of everyone. Are you dumb? No, because Grandma was wrong. I love my Grandma. I love my dad. I love my Grandpa. She was wrong on this one. And she doesn't need to sit next to me on the throne. She doesn't need to have authority because she will not repent from this. She won't repent. She won't, she won't even admit she was wrong. 
And you know what? I've got to let the nation know. I've got to let the people know what my grandma did was wrong. And I'm willing to burn it in front of all of you. And I still love her. I'm still going to care for her. I'm going to still make sure she's got food. I'm still going to love her. I'm still going to show up on the holidays, you know, Sukkot, you know, Shabbat. Still gonna, yeah, it's all going to happen. But grandma, you're wrong. I love you. We, we, this is an incredible repentance of Asa. It shows his heart that it's not for his family. It's not for his ancestry. It's, not, it's like, I want a heart for God and his word and who he is and what's true. And I want to lead my people like my, my great-grandfather David did. I, I want to, or great-great-grandfather David did. That's, I want to lead my people like my great-great-grandfather led his people. Do you even know what your great-great-grandfather did? for a living. It also meant that Asa read the word because he knew what to do. He read about David, so he knew David. This is a young man who knew God's word and was willing to stand for it, even if it would cost him relationships in his own family. Because I just can't do that, Grandma. I love you, but no. And then it goes on and it says, the high places, it says he, the high places were not taken away, but Asa's heart was completely devoted to the Lord his entire life. This is an interesting little statement. See, Asa removed all the high places in the cities we read in Chronicles. He went to all the major cities in Judah, tore down the high places, but he didn't go to the valleys and the rural areas and take care of the high places. And so he followed the Lord. He was good. His heart was completely devoted to God, but he didn't go far enough to call out the wickedness as the king, which he had the right to do as the king, to tear down all the high places. And he left a remnant of a mess that comes back to haunt them, we'll see later. But he still followed the Lord. God said, but he followed me. Like, again, God is so good because he doesn't cover things up. He didn't say, oh, Asa, he was the best ever. He was awesome and wonderful, never did anything wrong. He's like, no, Asa, he was great, he was wonderful, didn't tear down the high places, bad move. See, that's our God. Our God is honest that way about you and me too. Like, I love you. If you know me, we have a relationship through Jesus Christ. We're forgiven. We have heaven guaranteed. We have a future and a hope. We have an ancestry that can never be taken away. And here's where you're an idiot. Like, that's our God. It's beautiful. He gives us such confidence in who we are, who he wants us to be, how he loves us, so that he can say, and these are the ways you're making mistakes, and he can tell other people, these are their mistakes, and you know what? You're probably not going to fix everything either, so keep trusting in me, but you can do better. Goes on and says this. Now we, that's the southern kingdom. We go back to the northern kingdom. It says, Nadab, son of Jeroboam, became king over Israel in the second year of Judah's king Asa. He reigned over Israel two years. Nadab did what was evil in the Lord's sight and followed the example of his father, Jeroboam, and the sin that had caused Israel to commit. Then Basha, son of Ahijah, the house of Issachar, conspired against Nadab, and Bashab struck him down at Gibeathon of the Philistines while Nadab and Israel were besieging Gibeathon. They're in the middle of a war and someone from their own nation comes in to kill them while they're in the middle of a war. This is how wicked the northern kingdom was. They still called themselves God followers. Both of their golden calves were called Yahweh. They didn't name their golden calves different names. Their golden calves were named Yahweh. And then it says, in the third year of Judah's king Asa, Basha killed Nadab and reigned in his place. It said, Asa had an army of 300,000 from Judah bearing large shields and spears and 2,800 
2,800 from Benjamin bearing uh, regular shields and drawing the bow. All these were brave warriors. Then Zareth the Cushite came against them. So this is happening at the same time that Basha is taking over the kingdom. So this is what's happening in the southern kingdom. Then Zareth the Cushite came against them with an army of one million men and 300 chariots. You got chariots, and again, you're heavily outnumbered, almost two to one again. Then it says, look at this. They came as far as Meresheth. So Asa marched out against him and lined up in battle formation in the valley of Zepathath at Merasha. Asa doesn't just sit back and be like, oh God, save us. Save us all, please. He went to battle. You remember how David committed adultery with Uriah the Hittite? There's a small phrase right there that says, when kings were supposed to go to war to fight for God, David stayed home. And while he was home, he got bored and decided to go look at the women on top of his roof, which he built a palace where he could see all the women bathing on their rooftops. If he would have been at war, he wouldn't have had the problem. Get to work. Work is good. Don't sit around and do nothing. Just sitting around and do nothing. It's not going to do well for you. I know people are hurting. I know you made to go through healing. You need counseling. I know that there's trauma in your life. All of those things. But I am telling you, if you have too much time on your hand, you will focus on yourself and Satan will turn in on you and you will get to a place of anxiety and depression and mess that will just destroy you. You've got to do something. You've got to trust God and allow him to take that next step, to step out and not go in on yourself. It goes on and says this. Then Asa cried out to the Lord his God. So just like Abijam and the people cried out, Asa looks, he goes, we're done. I don't know if he remembered the story from just a few years earlier. He's like, I know, they cried out. He cries out, Lord, there's no one besides you to help the mighty and those without strength. He could have easily gone to the people and said, hey, remember what happened with Abijam? Oh, we need to do that again. God's going to do it. He's going to do it. We're confident. Let's go fight. Because we, we're going to take this back. It's not what he does. He looks and he goes, we're, we're in trouble. Just, we just got to cry out to him. And then it says, look, help us, Lord God, for we depend on you. And in your name, we have come against this large army. Yahweh, you are our God. Don't let a mere mortal hinder you, this Cushite king. So the Lord routed the Cushites before Asa and before Judah, and the Cushites fled. Then Asa and the people who were with him pursued them as far as Gara. And the Cushites fell until they had no survivors, for they were crushed before Yahweh and his army. Then it says, the Spirit of God came on Azariah, son of Obed. So he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Asa and all Judah and Benjamin, hear me. The Lord is with you when you are with him. That's a key. We always want to say the Lord is with us, but we don't want to ask the question, are we with him? It's a big question that nobody, everybody wants to tell everybody, oh, the Lord's with you, the Lord's with you, the Lord's with you. Instead of saying, yes, God has promised that he will be with us someday when he brings a new earth, right? And, and yes, we have the Holy Spirit that indwells us, but like, are you with him? That's a better question. Because God's already said he would be with us. It's a promise. We don't have to like, like think about that. But are we with him? That's what we need to ask. And then it says, look, if you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you abandon him, he will abandon you. That doesn't mean he abandons his covenant. It means he's going to abandon them in this fight. Like, fine, you don't, you don't want to trust me in this? You don't want to do the righteous thing and do what I tell you to do? I'm out. I'll let the punishment teach you instead of the deliverance. Let me say that again. 
I'll let the punishment teach you instead of the deliverance. And unfortunately for most of us, we learn better from punishment than we do deliverance. Then he goes on and he says, For many years Israel has been without the true God, without a teaching priest, and without instruction. For many years you've been playing games. You've been playing like there's... There's two, there's two Yahweh's in the northern kingdom and Yahweh's in the temple and I'm telling you, he ain't with you. You guys have been playing games. Then he goes on and he says, but when they turned to the Lord God of Israel in their distress and sought him, he was found by them. He's not hiding. He's not waiting for you to clean yourself up to get all righteous. That's not what he's doing. He's literally like, I just want you to look for me. <laughs> Please. Well, just think I'm with you and do whatever you want. Like, pause and go, am I with God? And then he says, in those times there was no peace for those who went about their daily activities because the residents of the lands had many conflicts. He's like, they couldn't find peace because they couldn't surrender to God. Chasing everything, having all kinds of conflicts because they just couldn't put their confidence and peace in God. They wanted to trust some ancestor. They wanted to make some plan that would give a future for their kids, but they didn't just want to say, we will trust the Lord. And whatever he asks us to do and whatever he calls us to, it doesn't turn out well for me. It's fine. I trust him. He's got it. Second Chronicles go on and says, the nation was crushed Nation, he goes on, the prophet's still speaking. It says, nation was crushed by nation and city by city for God troubled them with every possible distress. But as for you, be strong, don't be discouraged for your work has a reward. Look at this, when Asa heard these words and the prophecy of Azariah, the son of Obed, the prophet, he took courage and removed the detestable idols from the whole land of Judah and Benjamin and from the cities he had captured in the hill country of Ephraim. He renovated the altar of the Lord that was in front of the portico of the Lord's temple. Then he gathered all Judah and Benjamin, as well as those from the tribes of Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon, who had settled among them. In other words, they left the northern wickedness and came and settled. He gathers all of them, for they had defected to him from Israel in great numbers when they saw that Yahweh his God was with him. They were gathered in Jerusalem in the third month of the 15th year of Isaiah's reign. At that time, they sacrificed to the Lord 700 cattle, 7,000 sheep from all the plunder they had brought. They had entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, their God of their ancestors, with their, with their mind and all their heart. Whoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel would be put to death. Well, that's, that's not much of an option. Now, you can fake seeking, by the way, but I'm glad that Asa made it fake it. Right? You're going to fake it. Fake it till you make it. Right? Like, you don't have permission not to seek and be like, you just have to let me not seek. Well, no. I don't have to bless not seeking. I, I want to bless you, but I don't have to bless not seeking. And he says that, and he, he lays it out, and he says, look at this. Young or old, man or woman. Doesn't matter. You can't be, a, you know, grouchy old person be like, well, I'm just a grouchy old person. Just deal with it. Doesn't work. That's not following the Lord. <laughs> Sorry. And you can't be an arrogant, prideful young person and be like, I know more than everybody. That's not going to work. And it goes on and it says, they took an oath to the Lord in a loud voice. Can you imagine? The, the, like this is millions of people. And they're like, we're all in. Like this is more than some football game with as I was listening to yesterday with Oklahoma and Texas or whoever. Like this is bigger than that. 
Like the sound of this would just be like, we are all in. And with trumpets and with ram horns. I mean, they're blowing horns and trumpets. You think the bands are competing. I mean, this is nothing. Like this is like, we are all in with God. Man, if the church would do that today, can you imagine the power of that? We don't care the results. We're in for what God says. We're in for who Jesus is, and we're going to live it, and we're going to hold one another accountable. And if you're not living it, I'm going to be the first one to show up, cut down your Asher pole, and burn it out in the front yard. Because I love you. I love you. I don't want you to do that in your life. And I don't want that to be what my kids see and others see in our nation. Like, no, stop it. And being patient with one another, which the New Testament tells us to do. That we aren't kings. We don't have the Old Testament law. We have nations now that God is over. We're not a nation, so to speak, that get to make the laws and put our finger on people. We have to sit under because we're slaves in a foreign country because our home is heaven. This isn't our home. And so you behave differently when you understand you're a slave in a foreign nation than thinking, no, this is my nation. I got power. I'll tell you what to do. It comes out very differently. Because if you understand you're a slave, you understand you have to appeal to your leaders. You have to tell them the truth. You have to take their abuse sometimes. You have to work within it so that they understand they don't have authority and you don't have authority. God does. Because he has no authority other than him now and these messy governments that we have. It goes on and it says, All Judah rejoiced over the oath they had sworn with all their mind. So their heart, their mind, their soul. They had sought him with all their heart and he was found by them. So the Lord gave them rest on every side. King Asa also removed Makkah, his grandmother. We read about that earlier, from being queen mother because she had made an obscene image of Asherah. He chopped down her obscene image and crushed it and burned it in the Kidron Valley. The high places were not taken away from Israel. Nevertheless, Asa was wholehearted his entire life. Even though he didn't do everything, God still calls him wholehearted. And that's going to be you at the end of your life, by the way. I'm, I'm telling you. You're going to be sitting at the end of your life, and people are going to look at you and go, this is deep. you didn't do that, you messed up there. You're going to think, I messed up that, I messed up. Nope, nope. And God's going to look at you and say, yeah, but you were wholehearted for me. You kept coming back to me. Your heart was mine. It's okay. It's okay. I'll cover that. We'll deal with that in the next generation. All right, I got you. Like, that's, oh, thank God. <laughs> this is in his word. Then he goes on and he says, he brought his father's consecrated gifts, his own consecrated gifts into the Lord's temple, silver, gold, and utensils. There was no war until the 35th year of Asa's reign. God gave him incredible peace. And Asa said, I'm going to bring all the things that my father said are mine. They're not mine. They're the, everything's the Lord's. And he surrendered it all. And that's what Jesus calls us to do. It's what the church picture is supposed to be. It goes on in Matthew. This is what Jesus said in Matthew. He says kind of the same thing. He says, one of them, an expert in the law, asked the question to test him. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? He said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and with all your mind. What did we just read that they declared they wanted to do? Love the Lord with their heart, soul, and mind. And then he goes on and he says, look at this. He could have stopped there, but he doesn't. This is the greatest and most important command. The second's just like it. You got to do something. <laughs> Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. You can't have one without the other. You can't. You can't say you love God and then not be loving to people that he wants to know him in this, in this world. You can't do it. And love sometimes is hard. It's not always easy. They were killing people because they loved them. Like, nope, we're going to take out your mom because she's causing you to worship Asherah. 
Sorry about that. We'll take care of you. I mean, do you realize that's why they started in the church in Acts? They started, the first ministry they started was for the widows and orphans. Why? Because the men were going out preaching the gospel and getting killed for it. And so the church had to say, well, what do we do now? Do we just, well, sorry your dad got killed. Okay, we need a new smoke machine. I'm not against smoke machines. I think they're really cool. Lasers shoot through them. It's kind of neat. But the first ministry they created was we've got to take care of the widows and orphans because we have men that are being obedient to preach the gospel and they're dying for it. They're losing their jobs. They're being thrown in prison. And we got all these people to care for because that's what happens when you go for God, things get messy because we're in a war. And you better be ready. You better be ready to care for others in the midst of that the best you can with whatever God's given you. And then it says when the Pharisees were together, Jesus questioned them. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? David's, they told him. He asked them, how is it then that David, inspired by the Spirit, called his own son Lord? Uh, we don't have an answer for that. That's right, because I'm both man and God, and I'm both from the line of David, and I'm from the Holy Spirit line of God, and you guys don't get that, and you're missing it. You see, they were arguing at this time about who was the rightful king. Was Jeroboam's nation right? Was the, that Samaria, the division, all this stuff? And Jesus is like, I'm in front of you right now. The person that David was talking about and all the kings that came from David, Jesus is like, I'm here. It wasn't about any of them. It was about them pointing to me, he says. First king goes on. It says, when Basha became king, he struck down the entire house of Jeroboam. Remember, God told Jeroboam, I'm going to kill your whole house if you don't obey me. So Basha takes over, kills the whole house of Jeroboam. They're, they're annihilated, wiped out. And he goes on, it says, he did not leave Jeroboam any survivors, but destroyed his family according to the word of the Lord he had spoken through his servant Ahijah the, the Silonite. This was because Jeroboam had provoked the Lord, God of Israel, by the sins he had committed and had caused Israel to commit. In other words, God didn't want to kill him, but you keep provoking, you keep poking the bear long enough, the bear bites. God's like, I, I, I can't continue to let this go on. I've had mercy after mercy after mercy for you. Stop, please. Then it says, there was war between Asa and Basha, king of Israel, throughout their reigns. Israel's king Basha went to war against Judah. He built Ramah in order to deny anyone access to Judah's king Asa. Look at this. The first king in the northern kingdom said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to create a southern border. And no one gets access to go to Jerusalem and get down there and worship God because I don't want anybody to have access and leave my kingdom. And then it says, so Asher withdrew all the silver and gold that remained in the treasury of the Lord's temple and the treasuries of the royal palace and put it into the hands of the servants. Then King Asa sent them to Ben-Hadon, son of Tabaram, son of Hezon, and the king of Aram, the king of Aram, who lived in Damascus, saying, there's a treaty between you and me, between my father and your father. He goes on and says, look, I've sent a gift to you of silver and gold. Go, break your treaty with Basha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. But Ben-Hadon listened to King or Ben had and listened to King Asa and sent the commanders of his army against the cities of Israel. At that time, Hananiah the seer came to King of Asa, Judah, and said to him, Because you've depended on the king of Aram, and if you've not depended on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Aram has escaped from your hand. We were not the Cushites and the Libyans, a vast army with many chariots and horsemen. We just read that story. When you depended on Yahweh, he handed them over to you for the eyes of Yahweh roamed throughout the earth to show himself strong for those whose hearts are completely his. You have been foolish in this matter. Therefore, you will have wars from now on. 
Asa had peace for 35 years and he got comfortable. And when the war came and problems came, instead of crying out to God, trusting God and God's plan for the future, he said, I got to make a treaty. I got to compromise. I got to bring in Aram to save what I built and what I have and save now my children because he probably didn't have children in the first war yet. But now I got to save my kids and preserve the line and preserve the nation and do all this stuff. I can't just like trust God and surrender stuff anymore. That's scary. And he's like, because you did this, now you're going to have wars all the time. So instead of trusting God and giving all your money to Aram, you're just going to have wars and spend all your money on wars. And he goes on, he says, Asa was angry with the seer and put him in prison because of his anger over this. And Asa mistreated some of the people at that time. You ever done that? Someone comes to you, they call out sin in your life, they ask you to repent, they talk about some issues in your life, and you get angry, and you distance yourself, and you're away from me, you're in, I don't want you around, who are you to tell me, and you have all that attitude? Be careful. It doesn't mean that you haven't followed God, it doesn't mean you don't love God. Asa was wholehearted, we read that, but he made some serious calculated errors, and they're the same ones we make in our culture today. They're identical. Once we get what we get, we start trying to protect it all. And then we start treating people terribly. And instead of loving our neighbor, as Jesus said, they're two sides of the same coin. Love God, love people. Got to protect. Got to protect. Got to protect. Got to protect. Be careful. Be careful. Because you'll make treaties and do stuff and you'll have a prophet show up someday and be like, what were you thinking? I'm sure when Asa went to heaven, God wasn't like, you screwed up, you're out of here. I don't think that happened. If he was wholehearted, then he's going to be in heaven. But I'm sure when he got there, he's like, oh man, you did a great job, but here's all the stuff I have to burn away that you did and like praise that I'm burning it away. Let's all celebrate that. It's all gone. Okay, now you enter into your rest. <laughs> like be careful because we can be just like this. It says in the third year of Judah's king Asa, Basha son of Adjah became king over Israel and reigned in Tizer for 24 years. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight and followed the example of Jeroboam and the sin he had caused Israel to commit. Now the word of the Lord came to Jehu son of Hananiah against Basha. Because I raised you up from the dust and made you ruler over my people Israel. In other words, God's like, you thought you did it. I used you to take care of Jeroboam and to fulfill what I wanted done. And you think you did it? You did. And then he says, but you have walked in the way of Jeroboam and have caused my people Israel to sin, provoking me with their sins. The guy you killed, you're just like him. Then he says, take note, I will sweep away Basha and his house and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Basha, his son Ella, became king in his place. Through the prophet Jehu, son of Hananiah, the word of the Lord also came against Basha and against his house because all the evil he had done in the Lord's sight, provoking him with the work of his hands and being like the house of Jeroboam. And because Basha had struck down the house of Jeroboam. In the 26th year of Judah's king Asa, Ella, son of Basha, became king over Israel and reigned in Tizra two years. His servant Zimri, commander of half his chariots, conspired against him while Ella... Uh, Eliah was in Tizra getting drunk in the house of Azra. I mean, this is like reading something out of like, you know, some movie, right? And then it says, who was in charge of the household of Tizra. In the 27th year of Judah's king Asa, Zimri went in, struck Ella down, killing him. Then Zimri became king in his place. When he became king, he, as soon as he was seated on his throne, Zimri struck down the entire house of Basha. This nation is in a mess. They're just killing each other, Literally. I want power. I want power. You're dead. You're nothing to me. This sounds really familiar. We just haven't started killing each other on this level yet. But it's coming. 
He goes on and he says, when he became king, as soon as he was seated, he struck down the entire house. He did not leave a single male, including his kinsmen and his friends. I don't care if we were friends. I, don't, I do not care. If you had any relationship, with, you're done. Church does this today. We can't see the good. We can't see the differences. We get so caught up in all the divisions and we can't just sit down and say, can we have just a, a conversation of what it looks like to, be, to, be, to come together? I know we have divisions. I know why we have them. God made the division of Jeroboam and Rehoboam. He told them to do that. But we don't have to live killing each other in it. We can figure out a way to say we're going to worship the right way even though we have our differences and our separation. I wish we could do this in our culture. But instead, we just keep repeating the past, doing what our ancestors and descendants have done. He goes on and he says, So Zimri destroyed the entire house. According to the word of the Lord, he had spoken against him. This happened because all the sins of Basha and those of his son Ella, which they committed, and caused Israel to commit, provoking the Lord of God of Israel with their worthless idols. In the 27th year of Judah kings, Asa's still on the throne, and this is what the northern kingdom's going through. Zimri became king for seven days in Tizra. Seven days this guy lasted. Now the troops were encamped against Zibanoth and the Philistines. When these troops had heard that Zimri had not only conspired, but had also struck down the king, then all Israel made Omri, the army commander, king over Israel that very day in the camp. Omri, along with all Israel, marched up from Gibbethon and besieged Tizra. When Zimri saw that the city was captured, he entered the citadel of the royal palace, burned it down over himself, and he died. Because of the sin he had committed by doing what was evil in the Lord's sight and by following the example of Jeroboam and the sin he caused Israel to commit. And the sin that Jeroboam caused Israel to commit was to distance themselves. We have the right way to do it. We're going to create a different way to do it. We can't partner with them. We can't. That's what he did. That was the sin that they kept doing. And so then this guy's like, well, now I'm right, and Zimri's right, and Ella's right, and I'm going to kill him, and I'll show you I'm right, and see, I won, so I'm right. God's like, that doesn't make you right just because you won. And then he goes on, and he says, at that time, the people of Israel were divided. Duh. <laughs> half the people followed Tibri, son of Ginnath, to make him king, and half followed Omri. However, the people who followed Omri proved stronger than those who followed Tib- Tibni, son of Ganath, so Tibni died and Omri became king. What a disaster. Then it goes on. In the third year of Judah king Asus, Omri became king over Israel and reigned 12 years. He reigned six years in Tizra, and then he brought the hill country of Samaria from Shimmer for 150 pounds of silver, and he built up the hill. He named the city he built Samaria. This is key. We'll talk about this later, but the reason the Jews and the Samaritans didn't get along is right here. And then it goes on and it says, based on the name Shimmer, the owner of the hill, Omri did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He did more evil than all who were before him. He followed the example of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and his sins that he caused Israel to commit, provoking the Lord of Israel with their worthless idols. His son Ahab became king in his place. Do you see how they keep repeating the same patterns? They won't stop and go, you know, let me question some things. Let's talk about, I know we won. I know we're powerful. I know I sit on the throne. But instead of just doing the same thing, how about we pause and say, I wonder why I'm here. It may just be by random, absolute, God-merciful chance that I got to where I'm at. Then he goes on and says this. Ahab, son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Judah's King Asa. Ahab, son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. Look at this. But Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight 
more than all who was before him. Do you see the pattern? More evil. More, more, more. If no one's stopping. It's just we're going to keep doing the same systems, the same things, the same things. And it's going to work, and it's going to work, and it's going to work. And nobody's just going, stop. Maybe we got this wrong. Well, but we're a nation, and I won, and I'm a king. That doesn't mean you're right. Be careful. As I wrap up, this is what Jesus said in his day. Jesus answered a question. He answered when they were talking about what it means to follow him and know him and love him. And he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Jeroboam could have had that. His descendants could have had that and they kept making other homes, other high places instead of making God their home. The one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. He won't won't be concerned. He'll he'll keep his stuff. He'll keep what he has, but he won't keep my words. The word that you hear is not mine, but is from the Father who sent me. I have spoken these things to you while I remain with you, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, Sukkot. (laughs) The Holy Spirit's going to come. The Father will send him in my name, He will teach you all things and remind you of everything, a memorial, a remembrance of everything I have told you. From Genesis all the way to the end, he's going to give you the reminder of it all. And look what he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give you the kind of peace the world gives and the world wants. I give you a deeper peace, a peace that will cause you to rally and fight. And then he says, Your heart must not be troubled or fearful. Easy to say for you, Jesus. No, it wasn't, because he was getting ready to go to the cross. 1 Corinthians, Paul says this. He says, I received from the Lord Jesus. In other words, he says, I'm obeying Jesus when I tell you this. What I also passed on to you on the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. Do you know that Sukkot, which we're celebrating, that It's when they bring in the first of the wheat harvest. You would give the wheat offering. You would bring the tithe of the wheat offering on Sukkot. It's the sign of the Holy Spirit coming into you, and you give God the first fruits of that harvest, believing that he will produce more for you. I give the first to God and trust him, and I'm going to trust him to produce more. That's what the Holy Spirit, I'm going to let the Holy Spirit come in. I'm going to trust Jesus, and I'm going to trust him to change me and produce the fruit I have obviously not been able to produce on my own. And Jesus uses bread as that example, and he says, look at this. On the night he was betrayed, he took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body. It's for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant established by my blood. Do this as oft as you drink it and in memorial, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, look at what he says, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It reminds us of our need to die. That my Lord laid down his life for his body the church, and he laid down his life for those he loved. And if I love him, I'll do the same. I'll surrender to him. And then Paul says, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy way will be guilty 
of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. So a man should examine himself in this way. He should eat the bread and drink from the cup. How? How did Jesus do it? He gave thanks. Give thanks. You can't save yourself. <laughs> That's what that reminds you. You can't, you can't give yourself a new body. For some of us, we need that reminder. I can't give myself a new body. Sure what one? Can't do it. So I'm going to that one <laughs> as a reminder. And then he says, whoever drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. What are you trusting in? What insights, what things do you change? What high places? And are you looking for ancestors and descendants that you're trying to produce? Or are you just trusting God for what he can produce and what he has produced? See, the communion table is that reminder, a constant reminder through the ages. It's a symbol of the Passover Seder meal that was given in the Old Testament to the people of their desperate need for a Messiah to come and pave the way and die for them. It's a beautiful picture that's been celebrated thousands of years. The body being his body broken and the blood, the grape juice or the wine being that which was shed. And it's that reminder that these things someday I will eat again with you, Jesus says in heaven. That he's going to take communion with us. And right now we do it as a body. Recognizing the body. See, this isn't my personal relationship. Communion was given to the church. For us to be reminded to love God and love people. So I just ask you to examine yourself. If you can't come to the communion table and give thanks because you don't know Jesus and you're mad at him and how dare he did this, then don't take communion. But if you can give thanks that God can say, yeah, Matt trusted me with his whole heart, but he's a moron and here's all the way. <laughs> you can go to the table and say, God, thank you. Thank you that I trusted you and thank you that you're still changing me and your Holy Spirit's working and producing fruits of repentance. I'm not there yet but I can come to the table and give thanks. Let's pray. Father, thank you for communion. Thank you for the picture that communion gives. Lord, I thank you for your body and your blood that was shed, and I ask you just to bless this time. Lord, I pray that we would give incredible thanks to you, that we would take this together, we would look around the room, just grateful that these are your people, that they're taking the oath like we read about to cry out to you and say, you are our savior. You're the one that's provided the way. We can't save ourselves. We're outnumbered, but we trust you to deliver us. And so Lord, thank you for that picture. I pray that if anyone here has not made that decision to wholeheartedly follow you and surrender, that today would be the day. That they would do it, and right after they do it, the communion table is open to them. And for those of us who know you, I pray that we would celebrate, regardless of where we're at in our walks, we would confess our sins, we would repent, and we would celebrate and give thanks for what you've done. And we would do what you have been asking your people to do for thousands of years, which is to eat the bread as a reminder that you're going to take a little bit of wheat and feed all of your people with it. And drink the blood, reminding that you're going to take just a drop of blood, and it's enough to forgive us of all of our sins. We thank you, we praise you in your name. Amen.